Hi, and welcome to episode number 23 of the Crypto Chick Podcast, your inside resource for the latest blockchain and crypto trends. I'm your host, the Crypto Chick, Rachel Wolfson. Today, I'm interviewing Brian Bellendorf, Executive Director of Hyperledger. In this interview, Brian gives an overview of the Hyperledger greenhouse, explaining the different distributed ledgers within the Hyperledger community and how each architecture is being used for different blockchain projects. Brian also goes into detail about open source and its impact on blockchain technology, noting that his interest in blockchain came about due to his views on open source standards. He also comments on Hyperledger Bezu and how it taps into the Ethereum public blockchain. Without further ado, let's get right to my interview with Brian. Enjoy. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining the show. It's so wonderful to have you as a guest. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Wonderful. So let's jump right on into the interview. I'm sure our listeners are so excited to hear about what you have to say about Hyperledger. So I think the first question we should start with is, what is Hyperledger? So Hyperledger is a collective uh, project put together by a large community of developers as well as companies who are behind many of those developers and beyond. Um, uh, we are a part of the Linux Foundation, and the Linux and, and Foundation has put together a series of these collaborative efforts, uh, these pre- uh, collaborative software projects, really with the idea of focusing attention on a, a given technology domain. It could originally was obviously operating systems with the Linux project, uh, and then uh, cloud computing, software-defined networking, about 150 now different uh, technology projects, everything from special effects and digital films to energy grid software, that sort of thing. And Hyperledger was started about three years ago to focus on distributed ledgers and smart contract systems, um, what typically we've all called blockchain technologies. But um, pretty much uh, that whole gamut, uh, just kind of leaving to the side, uh, uh, very least initially, kind of the whole cryptocurrency kind of thing, which we felt was being pretty well handled by, by others. We just felt it was important to talk about the use of these new technologies for a bunch of new use cases, and then to pull together a bunch of smart people and build code so that people can go out and start building these things. Okay, great. Can we talk a little bit about the Hyperledger greenhouse? Because there are different branches of Hyperledger, I guess, would you say branches? Does that sound right? Like there's Hyperledger fabric and... Hyperledger, the, the single word by itself should be thought of referring to a community. Okay. Um, just like there's the Apache community, there's the uh, Free Software Foundation community, right? Um, and the community called Hyperledger, I mean, we're part of the Linux Foundation community, but we're very distinctive uh, in uh, in terms of the, the types of companies involved and the types of developers involved. But that community puts together software releases of a bunch of different things. And three years ago when I started, uh, I started just after the project was founded, um, we already had two different technology code bases. We had uh, Hyperledger Fabric and Hyperledger Sawtooth. Um, and while these were both very, very general purpose distributed ledger systems, it was pretty clear there are some deep architectural differences between them. But no one really knew are those differences going to matter or not. We had to kind of try it out. We had to like take these to something you could actually run a, not just a prototype on, but a production system on to really understand if that was going to work. Um, and so when I joined, uh, I, I really I asked the community uh, to decide for me um, I, I, an answer to this question, which was, do we want to be about one particular architecture, one kind of core backbone that then everything would hang off of. There's a lot of simplicity to that model. Um, It's kind of how like the Linux project works and other things. Um, 
Uh, or do we want something that allows for more experimentation, allows for more um, uh, differences of opinion about what might the ideal architecture look like for how to build these things, or the ideal smart contract language, or the ideal uh, 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 consensus mechanism? Do we want to allow for those other ideas to come in and then kind of make it this bubbling kind of melting pot of these different ideas that it might eventually settle down to just one single system image, uh, one single stack, or might be a portfolio of different technologies that help cover even more ground in the blockchain space than we otherwise would. The community came back pretty resoundingly that they wanted to be a home for a number of different projects, right? They didn't, nobody really felt like they could decide at the beginning which one of the architectures was going to be the one to hang everything off of. Uh, and so we said, great. We said, let's build this like a greenhouse. Let's be one step more selective and one step more intentional about how we build this portfolio than you might see at something like the Apache Software Foundation, where really, if you're, no matter what you're building, if you're, if it's just random code that does like, any given function, as long as you follow their processes, you can become an Apache project. Here we felt it was important that these projects all be about blockchain technology and they all complement each other in some ways or at least usefully differentiate from each other. And so for us, as we thought about how to, how to explain this to the rest of the world, the idea of a, 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 like a garden, um, but even more intensely a greenhouse where you might have different kinds of things that you're growing, but they all share the same air. They all share the same growers. They all share the same water, right, is was really the right metaphor for us, because one thing these projects do share is the same software license. They share uh, the same uh, uh, staff, hyperledger staff, helping like coordinate the processes and development activities. They all share the same tools. Um, uh, and uh, and so we felt that there's something meaningful in that sharing um, uh, uh, that, that we wanted to get across. And that's why we thought the greenhouse metaphor would work. This solution is tailored for enterprises, correct? Like IBM and Oracle. I mean, like IBM uses hyperledger fabric. I think Oracle does also... Mm-hmm. But this is really like an enterprise blockchain solution. Well, blockchain technology as a whole, you know, has, has not really been a consumer-driven uh, type of type of thing, right? I mean, yeah, it's been fun to have wallets and and uh, to make payments to each other in Bitcoin and things like that. Um, and there are certainly interesting DApps emerging out there that are kind of consumer-level DApps. That's that's a whole world that's interesting. But the companies that came together first to figure this out were thinking about use cases around global payment infrastructures between major banks, right? Like how might SWIFT update themselves or be replaced by uh, a way to do payments between organizations in different different jurisdictions, right? Or somebody like DTCC, um, who manage all of the stock certificates on Wall Street, right? Um, how might they improve their systems to use something like this? And so the use cases ended up being, being very much enterprise driven rather than kind of consumer driven, because that's also where the biggest challenge was. The biggest challenge has been a lack of trust between parties, uh, operating in the same business, especially when you're talking about crossing international borders or operating in areas where there aren't strong jurisdiction, uh, jurisdictional institutions, you know, like filing a lawsuit against a company to enforce a contract can take a long time to do, right, in a country like China or, or other places. And so um, the ability for blockchain technology to not just standardize these business processes, but also provide a degree of enforcement to them that you don't get from ordinary business process management tools. Um, all of that meant that that's where kind of the use cases were focused. Um, and that and that's where the developers came from. That doesn't just mean it's a big company kind of story, though. There's a lot of startups in our ecosystem, a lot in um, whether it's supply chains, uh, uh, you know, uh, or uh, um, healthcare uh, or um, uh, transit. I mean, there's all these different uh, startups in our ecosystem, probably more startups than companies larger than, you know, 
certainly at the scale of an IBM or an Oracle. Um, and the good news is things like Fabric, you know, it's all open source. So, so anybody of whatever size can use it. Um, uh, and, and it was pretty interesting to see Fabric uh, as of last year deployed on every major cloud environment. So IBM and Oracle, but also uh, NSAP, but also um, uh, Azure, AWS, Google Cloud, those sorts of things as a managed service. So right. um, that level of adoption has been really cool. Got it. Yeah. And I think open source here is a very important point. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that um, is affecting blockchain or how, you know, how that's related (laughs) to blockchain technology? Well, um, so people probably know I've dabbled in open source software for most of my career, right? You know, that's that's kind of been my my theme. And I, I mean, I fell into blockchain technology because I did see it as a logical progression from open source software and the kind of revolution we were fighting in the late 90s about like, no, our technology systems shouldn't just be based on open standards, right? Because we've had open standards even before open source code. But the use of open source code to help build standards like HTTP um, or SSL uh, or um, or REST, right? Like um, all of these standards emerged and became widely adopted partly because open source software not only was available, not only was you know pretty high quality, but also because politically, like people could work together on code, and if they ever disagreed, they could take the code with them and go their separate ways. They could fork, right? Blockchain technology now gives us that ability to build these cooperative data systems, these cooperative IT systems that give us the ability, if we ever need to invoke it, to fork, right? Um, as sometimes happens in the cryptocurrency community, right? Um, but but gives us that with data, gives us that with business processes, um, and that acts as a check on. Tier. Journey, that acts as a way to build cooperative systems that are much more fair than just anointing somebody at the center uh, and hoping that they stay beneficent, right? Um, and so that's one reason I fell into blockchain tech. And one reason why I felt it was important that as we're building these layers of infrastructure, you know, these are the bridges and roads and highways for the next generation of the um, digital economy. And it was important that those bridges, roads, and highways be cooperative in nature rather than be dictated by single vendors, right? And blockchain technology gave us a path to do that. And it meant using open source software to build these open standards was pretty important and not just a, you know a single vendor publishing something with a with a with an open source license and saying okay we're done but actually building these as cooperative engagements um, uh, and getting to the point where something like fabric might have started initially at IBM something like sawtooth might have started initially at Intel and those companies continue to put more resources in um, but uh, but those platforms reach a level of ubiquity and maturity and trust to the degree that they become built by a broader constituency than just a single vendor. And that's something I think everybody should look for from the technology they're building on top of. Is it not just open source, but coming from um, a healthy, vibrant, multilateral, multi-stakeholder community? Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. What about, I mean, a lot of these companies like IBM that are using Hyperledger Fabric that's a private permissioned network, right? Well, you can use Fabric to build private permission networks, right? Like if you and I were both banks and, we, and there were you know, 10 other banks, we all wanted to do a settlement network between us. Um, we would each run a copy of Fabric uh, and, and point them at each other and that becomes a permission network. You can have multiples of these out there, right? Um, and you could even have apps that talk to more than one network at the same time. Okay. And then what about... So, I mean, most of the companies that use Hyperledger, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's private permission. Mm -hmm. But now I just read an article that you might be letting in a public permissionless 
mm-hmm. network, Ethereum, right? Mm-hmm. Software that's used. So, so again, we're all about software, right? Okay. We're um, like I, I remember telling people at the beginning of Hyperledger, we're never going to be about a coin, right? Um, you're never going to see Hypercoin or an uh-huh. ICO or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> I also told people we are not running a mainnet. We're not running a network of our own. This, this, these are tools for any group of people to go off and build their own networks with. But the governance of running a network and the challenges around defining what's the legal environment and what are the use cases, all those are, are, are things that, you know, if we had to do both of those at the same time, I worried we would be a stretch, right? Mm-hmm. And I worried wouldn't allow us to have a thousand experiments conducted in parallel that allow us to understand should the software be better in some way. Um, just because software and governance, I, in my head, are always better if they're done separately. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, I, I, so, right, so Fabric can be used to build permission networks, Sawtooth can also be used to build permission networks. Um, Hyperledger Aroha, Hyperledger Indy. We have uh, five of these framework kinds of technologies now. Um, Hyperledger Burrow is the is the fifth one. Uh, and they can all be used independently, though there's interesting ways to use some of them together. Um, uh, and now uh, we have a proposal to bring in um, what would become our 15th project at Hyperledger, I believe 15th, um, uh, called Hyperledger Bezu. And Hyperledger Bezu is um, uh, the uh, if it's accepted, um, and their vote will be on Thursday. Um, uh, is a um, uh, basically it was previously known as Pantheon, um, built by Pegasus, which is part of Consensus. Sorry for the lineage there. Um, and uh, Pantheon is used today to as both a Ethereum mainnet client, so it's like Geth. Or it's like, uh, is Parity one of those? I forget. Um, but it's there's a set of Ethereum clients that people can run and talk on the Ethereum network. And so Pantheon is one of those. Pantheon was also designed to be able to build permission networks. So uh, there's a couple, I believe, out there running on, on Pantheon now in production. Um, and so bringing that in sits very nicely next to Fabric and Sawtooth and the others, um, both as a general purpose platform, uh, what we call a framework for, for building these uh, permission blockchains, but also incidentally, by the way, it can talk to the Ethereum mainnet. Um, and that's, that's something we're, that's kind of exciting, I think. Yeah, yeah, because it would be the first public blockchain in the consortium. Is that what it... Well, I, 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 it's, it'd be the first software that's able to talk to a public okay, blockchain and be a node on a public blockchain, right? right? Just like we could have software that talks to Bitcoin or whatever. Um, and I think there's even a path that says that software, if it's called Bezu when it comes in, um, could also be configured perhaps, you know, if somebody did the work to add the f- support for it to talk on the Ethereum Classic network, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, uh, and there's other public networks out there that I think are interesting to enterprises, but but this would be the first. Got it. What about um, Bitfury? I know that there was a recent... Um, um, collaboration between Hyperledger and Bitfury. And I wrote an article recently about how they tap into the Bitcoin network. Mm-hmm. So technically, would Ethereum be the first public blockchain? Or because well, so, Bitfury is already talking to Hyperledger, yes. right? So, so Bitfury has joined as a member of okay. Hyperledger. Okay. Uh, and um, you know, all of our members are the companies that financially uh, sponsor our efforts, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, I have a staff of about eight full-time people who uh, part of whom go and help garden the uh, the greenhouse, make sure everything's growing, right? Um, and kind of manage the technical communities, not not towards a specific roadmap. The roadmap is really left up to the individual developers, but just to make sure people are collaborating. Using the tools right, you know that sort of thing, and then another half, which are about managing the interest of our member community and 
putting on events and getting them out to speak and doing all sorts of like engagement and helping them build their business on top of Hyperledger technologies. So Bitfury joined as one of those uh, members, as a member, um, uh, which doesn't uh, directly relate to any of the software development, right? Um, and we're talking with them now about things that they can do uh, with Hyperledger technologies inside their own, because they have an enterprise blockchain team. They have Exonum. a product called Exonum, yeah. right? Uh, you know, they're obviously very passionate about the Bitcoin kind of blockchain. And it's, to me, like if there's a business rationale there, if there's business use cases that relate to what we're doing, great, be a part of it. But they haven't brought any technology into Hyperledger mm, yet. I so, see. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to also, our listeners might not know the difference between a private permission network and a public permissionless network. Can you just kind of give an overview of that? Yeah, I uh, certainly prefer the terms permissioned and non-permissioned, okay. uh, right? Because um, uh, you could have uh, uh, a, a, well, they're almost like two different dimensions to it. So so public means, you know, the ledger, the the, the thing that's being written to, anybody can read. Uh, and uh, and private means it's always like a VPN. It's like privately visible, um, uh, only by select parties. And then permission versus unpermissioned means um, uh, in order to, to, to write to it, you would need to have permission, uh, I, but to read uh, an unpermission means anybody could uh, write to it. Um, so uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum happen to be, you know, public unpermissioned blockchains, meaning everybody can see all the history of transactions back to Satoshi's, you know, very first one, right? Um, or Vitalik's, I guess, I if his was the first in the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and unpermissioned in that case means anybody can add a node to those networks without having to prove who they are, without having to, to get on somebody's list or make an agreement uh, otherwise. Um, and that only works because of the proof of work consensus mechanism, which prevents somebody from pretending to be a thousand people, you know, and having a thousand votes in the um, consensus mechanism of the of the network. Uh, um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, there's you pay a penalty there in the amount of energy consumption. Um, uh, at the other end of that spectrum is the private permission blockchain, the 10 banks working together. But there's a lot of interesting space in between. Right. So um, uh, the Sovereign Foundation, for example, runs Hyperledger Indy, uh, which is one of our frameworks that's focused more on digital identity to run a network very much about digital identity verification. Um, the nodes on that network are um, uh, they're what they call their stewards and they are permissioned, but anybody can read from that blockchain. Um, uh, and, and that's used as a way to, for me to prove to you, hey, this is a valid passport or this is a valid diploma, that sort of thing, is signatures are checked in that, in that uh, and all sorts of interesting stuff happens on that, on that public but still permissioned blockchain. So it's like a hybrid. Yeah, it's like a hybrid of the okay. two. Um, and, and on the permission side, I mean, the 10 banks kind of example is kind of, you know, at one extreme. But when you start talking about a thousand organizations active in, you know, the rice supply chain, right, you know, uh, uh, and what does it take to add the thousandth and first? Um, those kinds of questions are still ones that uh, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out the answers to. But I think they end up looking very much more like the unpermission side of the spectrum than the permission kind um, uh, in terms of... In, consensus mechanisms in terms of other technologies used. And so I really think of it in my head as a spectrum between the two and um, interesting data points all along that spectrum. But I, I would say the larger the kind of business community you want to serve, the more it goes into the the larger public network side. Um, right. And it really just becomes a question of how hard is it to get a certificate to join that network, right? Um, Hopefully for any small or mid-sized business who is in a given sector to join that sector's 
standard blockchains should be as easy as go to a website, fill out a form, click, I agree. Okay, here's a certificate. Now you're bound to the legal and technical requirements to be on that network. Um, but at least it was accessible. At least it was easy. You didn't have to wait for a form to be processed, you know, or, or hope to impress somebody. Like, hopefully it's as easy as registering a domain name. Right. right. But right now that's not the case. Right. Uh, well, it typically hasn't been the case. Got it. Yeah, because this is we're still very much in the bootstrap phase. Right, definitely. Yeah. So you also mentioned, I think it was at the O'Reilly Open Source Convention, blockchain technology is not likely to create the next Amazon or Google, as it's more of a cooperative consortium. So can you comment on that and what you mean by that? So I remember in the mid '90s uh, when Bob Young was CEO of Red Hat. And somebody asked him, do you want Red Hat to grow to the size of Microsoft, you know, like to be the next Microsoft? And his answer was, no, I'd like Microsoft to shrink down to the size of Red Hat. Um, now, neither of those outcomes happened, but he was able to sell Red Hat, or well, his successors uh, sold Red Hat for a nice, tidy $35 billion to IBM, right? Um, and so in open source software, traditionally, the, 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 the benefit um, has tended to come in the form that's not exclusive, right? It's, it's in the form of here's shared code, but other people can use it too. And so it's a leg up uh, to be able to do more up above, but it's not a place to build defensible IP, right? It's not a place to like carve out uh, your, your castle and say, okay, if you want to come into the castle and enjoy things, you have to pay a price to get in. Um, uh, and every business that has successfully used open source software, I think it's figured out what's that next tier of value up the stack. Um, for blockchain technology. I don't think there's anybody who emerges who does with blockchain technology what Google did say with search, where with search, I think there, there, there are certain things about search that need to cover the entire web, that need to have great uh, uh, kind of uh, ways to understand the queries that came in that provided increasing returns um, that meant that that did become a 90 one party can own 90% of that market, right? But with blockchain tech, it's very horizontal. Um, uh, the companies taking advantage of it today tend to be uh, uh, just equally the small companies and the large ones. Um, I, I think I, I don't know that somebody creates that kind of space where then everybody has to pay rent to be able to get in and use that technology. Um, uh, but there's certainly lots of interesting commercial opportunities for people to be great implementers, to be able to reinvent how their business works. But I think that's a door that's open equally as much to Walmart as it is to um, a startup company focusing on reinventing supply chains. Right. And it's also, I mean, it's interesting because it's like frenemies, you know, frenemies are all, can come together in one sort of network, I guess, like yeah. the IBM, um, the food trust, mm -hmm. and you've got Walmart and Dole and all of these. The food trust network. Right. right. And uh -huh. so they would normally be seen as competitors, but they're all part of this network, it's, right? Not only is it like interesting that it's possible, it's essential. Right. Like, like to, for these networks to actually get enough traction that they um, actually meaningfully reduce the cost of doing business with each other or meaningfully make make business more predictable or easier to manage in areas where there's less rule of law, that sort of thing, you actually need critical mass. And critical mass is probably not 5% of the participants in that marketplace. It's probably closer to 30%, 40%. And what you hope is that 95% or even 100% of everybody who should be participating in a marketplace is able to through one of these networks. Mm -hmm. So um, so I think any business entering this space needs to start very early on and thinking, not just how do I get my upstream and downstream 
uh, kind of involve my suppliers and my customers, but how do I get my competitors involved in a way that's meaningful to them, right? That actually is is of value to them. Uh, and that's something that enterprises don't wake up in the morning and often think about how to do. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is changing the, that whole thought process because it is so collaborative and it is about bringing your, you know, quote unquote, competitors in with you mm-hmm. so you can solve these problems together because it seems like with blockchain that, uh, you know, the more the better, obviously, rather than just one enterprise looking at one problem. Right. It's all about data sharing, right? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also on that point, I mean, since this is such a transformative technology, why do you think companies are still hesitant to use it? I think just like the rise of, you know, databases into modern enterprises in the 70s and 80s, like uh, uh, stretching back, although more to my parents' generation than my own, um, you know, there's a whole field of professionals that needed to be developed who understood how to work with database systems and IT systems, um, uh, and and that eventually became you know DBAs and and other uh, uh, and certifications in this space and that sort of thing. And building effective blockchain applications is still an, more art than science right now, um, and uh, and and harder than it has to be, I think. Um, uh, and I think there are a lot of people working to make that more accessible, whether it's better developer tools, uh, better. Or, uh, integration tools, that sort of thing. And, and certainly a focus for some, some of the people working in Hyperledger to make that easier to approach. But thinking about what, what's the most meaningful way that we can code this stuff together to produce value for everybody and, and, and everybody in the system, not just for the one that happens to be like leading the charge, um, is still a technical challenge. And I think a business school challenge too, because everybody, every MBA has shareholder value kind of like tattooed to the front, you know, back of their eyelids, right? Um, uh, but very few of them think about networks. Very few of them think about uh, ecosystems. Uh, and, 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 and how do you value that? How do you decide how much to invest in that? How do you know when you've invested too much? Or it, when, when something doesn't turn out the way that it should, was it wrong in strategy or wrong in execution? Uh, we don't have the templates yet. And that's uh, I, uh, something that I think is being developed through, you know, all these different networks launching what is you know things like food trust i'd say there's probably 200 of these uh kind of uh, networks in production today at various scales of, of implementation depth and we'll be learning from them we'll find out what are the um legal agreements between parties that work and the ones that that because they actually create uh, a low enough uh, hurdle to be involved um what are the governance models that work in terms of how do you decide when to make a change on that network to upgrade to fabric 2.0 you know if you're all on one four that sort of thing um i i and uh, and we'll see what settles out over time for that. Yeah. But I think that's just a lot of organizational experience that's needed. Um, and then secondly, if there is one technical barrier uh, that's still challenging for a lot, it's confidentiality. Mm-hmm. Because simultaneously, we all want the benefit of being able to verify everybody's the integrity of everybody's transactions. You know, when you say, I have this product that I swear it was grown in this country, you know, organically over here. Like, first, there's the whole human element of, you know, are there enough inspectors? How much trust can I have in the process? Um but to have that data all on the blockchain, if you were to write it all, the simplest thing is write it all in clear text. But now your entire supply chain is exposed to your competitors, right? Um, and so some of that necessarily in the early days will have to be some parts encrypted, some parts in clear text. Um, uh, uh, and managing the encryption keys is delicate. Uh, but um, we need the kind of transactional confidentiality that you're starting to see in systems like Zcash and uh, I, you know other other zero knowledge proof systems. Um, but implemented in a way that is much more regular, much more uh, 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 normal. 
normalized in a way. Um, and, and that's, I think the, the enterprise blockchain community is still um, struggling a bit with, well, how much of my core business processes can I put on there and meaningfully put there without exposing too much to my competitors? Right. I mean, in your opinion, what's, and you mentioned zero knowledge proof, what is the solution as of now that people are looking at? Is it? There's, I mean, four or five different um, approaches to confidentiality. Um, I mean, even the most crude one is by using, okay, we've got this network and the parties in this network will bind each other to a legal agreement that says there's certain things you can't do with this data. Even though you can see it, even though it's part of like verifying a transaction, you can verify against it, you are uh, not allowed to sell it to, you know, people outside the pool. You're not allowed to aggregate it with other data. You're not allowed to trade uh, and buy and sell assets based on that, you know, like, like, like certain constraints legally put around it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is uh, things like what Fabric has called channels, which are ways to subset the network, which is maybe one layer of this transaction is something we broadcast so everybody can see, but other layers of this are things only you and I, or you, I, and a regulator can see and verify. And so that kind of subsetting uh, is a feature in Fabric mm-hmm. um, that I don't think any other blockchain stack has, uh, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Um, uh, to uh, things like, hey, we'll take some data encrypted and store it off chain, but we'll share the uh, uh, signatures of that so we can like know. Like Bitfury. Uh, so I think Exonum yeah. doing that with like, you know, by publishing signatures to the public yeah. uh, Bitcoin blockchain, or you can do that with other blockchains as well. Um, and then zero knowledge proofs. I mean, it, this is a very active field of research. Lots of new uh, uh, routines coming out, lots of new uh, approaches to it. Um, and it is really great. I'll mention Zcash again. It is really great to see See this stuff being tested at scale, um, uh, and 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 where there's real value at stake, you know, people could attack that right and and get rewarded for it. So that's proving it out in a way that that I think is really useful. But um, I I can't even keep up, you know, zk snarks and starks and that sort of thing. Like it's awesome. Um, but we I I as I understand it, we still haven't figured out how to make that stuff uh, computationally as as simple as it needs to be to become ubiquitous. Got it. Yeah. And let's talk about one more major challenge, interoperability. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I know that everyone that's using a solution, it's all about, you know, how do we get this to be interoperable with other blockchains? So, Right. Um, So two things underlie most concerns that lead to somebody saying, you know, I really am concerned about interoperability. Um, one concern is, uh, well, it, you know, it looks like we're not just going to have one big ledger everybody's on. Uh, uh, there's going to be a bunch of ledgers out there. How do I manage the complexity of that without requiring my engineers, you know, or my, my product team or whoever to have to come up to speed on a hundred different ways to build things? And I think we're not going to have a hundred different ways to build things, um, but I don't think we'll have less than three or four. Right. And it might even settle out north of that. It'll look very much like the database market. Um, where, it, you know, we have some very different databases out there and a very long tail of other platforms, but the top three or four databases command most of the attention from the developer community and the product community. Um, I, um, but the real, the second thing that I think underlies that when people ask that is um, they don't want to um, convince their CEO to spend a lot of money to build uh, a prototype or a proof of concept or worst of all, go into production, then discover 
whatsoever, that um, uh, the product stack that they built entirely on top of and made all of their promises against was a dead end. And um, the startup behind it is going out of business or the big company behind it is riffing everybody, you know, and canceling the project. Right. Um, uh, and so that kind of um, I don't want to make a mistake. No one wants to make mistakes. Right. But that kind of I don't want to hitch my wagon to something that then disappears is a completely reasonable concern. And it can happen no matter what the quality of the underlying code is or whatever technical features it has. The only safeguard against that is to buy into uh, platforms that have traction, right? And meaningful market traction and, and not just end users adopting that, uh, but also other types of consulting organizations that say we support this, we support that, other types of product companies that say we are now you know, building support into that. And so when we think about how to grow this ecosystem, it's not just how do we pull devs into bright features. We think about things like how do we get every cloud platform out there to run this? Um, how do we uh, certify uh, administrators and developers? So these are two kinds of certification uh, exams that we have out there now. Well, the training exams and certification now for administrators. Um, we also have on the Hyperledger website, here is the uh, vendor directory, um, 85 different companies that will help you build a blockchain stack one way or another, most of them on Fabric, but increasingly on Sawtooth and some of the other Hyperledger tech. Um, and we'll be doing a certification scheme for solutions providers and for cloud providers so that you know, um, okay, here's somebody I can hire who's built this kind of stuff before, who has people who are trained on staff, who've been vetted by Hyperledger as, uh, we can't vet them on quality of their code, but we can at least vet them that they are there, they're presence, they've been delivering features, and they've got the right trained and certified people on staff to be able to help build this. Um, and on the cloud provider, you want to know that if you hire a company like any of the ones that we've mentioned to go and bootstrap your blockchain network with, you know, your competitor and three other parties, you know, like you're bootstrapping that, getting it started, you want to make sure you're not falling into a vendor-specific trap, right? That you're actually able to grow as you grow that community to grow uh, and have other technology companies provide support to additional nodes on that network. So that when you add another bank or you add another trading partner and they say, sorry, our technology partner is Alibaba. And we really, they have a huge block chain team, we want them to be a part of this, that they can come in and be a first class participant in that network. Um, and so these are all market development kinds of things that you need to do. Uh, and if you're a consumer of this stuff, you really want to look for the ecosystems that have those features um, rather than everything being coordinated by a single vendor or by a single, even a single NGO. Yeah, there's still a lot I think that needs to be done, but obviously we're making lots of progress mm -hmm. um, thanks to people like you. So we've been talking a lot about blockchain. I think I just want to finish uh, the podcast on a cryptocurrency note. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on cryptocurrency, any thoughts on Bitcoin that you want to share with the listeners? I cannot set a price target or, or anything like that. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Um, you know, Libra. Right. Mm -hmm. If I can pivot a little bit to talk about that, Libra is really interesting. I mean, it's so much of a validation, I think, in many ways for what the cryptocurrency community has been arguing for that. I think those who've been saying this is a, uh, a credibility lift for um, people who've been operating in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum and other spaces is is valid. Right. It's it shows that there's. Lots of people thinking about, you know, non non fiat currencies, cross jurisdictional currencies, programmable money, um, I, I, and and I think even even to a large degree, the um, immutable aspect, the uncensorable aspect of it is is important too. What is clear though is it also points to a world where, um, you know, we we're used to, to building networks that have reference points, right? To to, to building networks of uh, of uh, um, that are a mix of businesses and government regulators and um, 
courts, right, uh, and and folks who help enforce law, enforce laws, and 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 other facilitators because that's what's made for an efficient marketplace. And blockchain technology can help accelerate all that um, uh, without throwing it all away, right? Like like I, there's this I could completely understand the desire in many part of people, especially involved early in the cryptocurrency community, to burn it all down because coming out of two th- the 2008 crisis, it looked like it all deserved to be burned down. And at various points, you know, in the last 10 years, I'd say um, institutions have not done themselves any favors by, you know, the way that they've they've acted or failed to act in some ways. So I completely understand the the, the sentiment where a lot of that comes from. Uh, but uh, but I also hear people in the Bitcoin and, uh, and the cryptocurrency community seeking that kind of institutional recognition and institutional involvement. Um, and so I think Libra has woken a lot of parties up uh, and it, I think is going to be a lift for that community. Um, it'll also create new competitors, though, for what we traditionally understand as the cryptocurrency community. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm already getting people tell, telling me about, oh, we're, we're competing against Libra. We're going to be this for, for Europe, you know. So, yeah, but I think it's definitely a great project and it's um, adding a lot of credibility to the space. So mm-hmm. I'm excited about it also. I think it just depends on, you know, the regulations and what eventually happens. And, and, and I think the biggest variable is how quickly will the central banks issue digital currencies? Right. Um, and at what level will that be M0, M1, M2? Because, um, you know, arguably the digital dollar shouldn't be a digital dollar backed by an unaudited company based in the Cayman Islands. Um, Obviously, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, uh, but a digital dollar backed by the same thing that is on your $1 bill by the full faith and credit of the U.S. Treasury. And you can doubt that, in which case you should swap that out for a, you know, a, 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 a real or a yen or a euro or something else. But, uh, um, but you know, that we could still get to programmable money that way. We could still get to a whole lot of the, the infrastructure that's been built around the cryptocurrency community. So people there are true pioneers, uh, lots of interesting space being explored, and I think we're all better off for it. Um, but it will be a much, uh, a very competitive market. Over right, the next right. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, Brian, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I'm just so happy that you could join me today. Um, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what should they do? Well, first come to hyperledger.org. We try to have everything there that's meaningful, especially for if you're a developer. The wiki on hyperledger.org has all sorts of information about how to use our stuff, how to engage in the community, that sort of thing. Uh, and and I'm not hard to find once, once you get there. Okay, great. Hear that, everyone? He's not hard to find once you get there. So check it out. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find further information in the show notes to learn more about Brian and the Hyperledger Foundation. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Crypto Chick Podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Also, if you have time, please leave me a review. I enjoy hearing your feedback. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at RachelWolf00 on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at Blockchain and Bikinis. Thanks for listening. See you guys next time.